Today we're going to talk about the law of love. We've discussed law as in um, the foundations of law for our lives as believers. And um, last week we talked about judgment. We talked about law and judgment and how when you have law, you also have judgment. Judgment comes along with it and how the scripture tells us we're not to be judgmental, but we are to be discerning and have judgment about things. We tried to give a, a pretty broad foundation for judging and judgment because the scripture says a lot about judgment so uh, and judgment always comes from a legal premise from law law is uh, given first and then that judgment is is following after that so now we want to talk about the law of love law is just not legalities law is just not having rules Law is about those things, those rules, those principles that govern our lives. And for the believer, the law of love is central to our whole disposition as believers. So um, I want to talk about the individual's arbitrary attitude towards law. Now that's a big word, the word arbitrary. Who's heard that word before, arbitrary? Who has never heard that word before? Okay, put the word, put your hand. Well, okay, let's say that word. Let's say arbitrary. Arbitrary. Okay, is that how you say it? Something like that. Arbitrary. Arbitrary. That's what I say. Yeah. So, what does the word mean? Well, it's an adjective. It's an adjective that describes the noun. And the noun that it's describing is the attitudes towards law. Okay, so it's the arbitrary attitudes towards law. Arbitrary means it's based on random choice or personal whim, which means, you know, will I obey the law or not? Well, today I don't feel like it. Tomorrow I might. You know, maybe the next day I will. Maybe the next day I won't. It's, it could be said that I have an arbitrary attitude towards law. If the law is to be obeyed, it should be obeyed all the time. But if I have an arbitrary attitude towards law, I'll obey it when I want to, on my personal choice, when I have a whim to obey it. So there's an individual's arbitrary attitude towards law in our society. So we have law in our society, but we determine whether we'll obey it or not. For instance, does it really matter if I walk when it says, don't walk at a stop sign? So we're standing there in the middle of the city and the light comes and it says, don't walk. And everybody else walks by. Does it really matter if I walk through the red don't walk sign? Tell me. Yes or no? Does it really matter? Some says yes. Some says no, just as long as there's no trucks coming. No cops around because that's called jaywalking. You know, so here we have an arbitrary attitude. Some will say, if I'm really in a hurry and my girlfriend is down the road and I have to meet her um, and the boys and, and this is stopping me, uh, I'll just walk through it because it really doesn't matter. I'll break the law just to get to my girlfriend. Or I, I'm late for work, you know, and I have to get to work and I'm stopped here at a stop sign. And it just looks like how long everybody else has walked through. And, you know, what does it feel like? When everybody else walks through the stop sign and you're left standing there waiting for the thing to go green, walk, and then you'll walk. I mean, how many of you will just stop there? It says, don't walk. Everybody else has broken the rule because it's lasted a little bit longer. They started walking through and you're still standing there. How do you feel when you're still standing there 
if you're gonna, are you one of those people who would stand there or are you one of those people who walk? Who would stand there? Who would walk? Depends on the day. That's exactly what I'm talking about. It depends on the day. That's arbitrary action towards or attitude towards law. So we have a problem. There's some demonic lies in our society that actually set this up. There's some things that set it up for us in the West we're talking about. So this may not be what it's like in Africa or in some other countries, but this is what it's like in Australia in the Western culture. This is what our our attitudes are. These are some deceptive lies that the devil has told us that we believe they're part of our culture now. They're part of the way we think. This is the part of the way an Australian person thinks. He says, values are relative. Or laws are up to you to enforce when you want to. Values or principles relate to different situations. It's wrong today, but it might be right tomorrow. It all depends on the situation. It's wrong to walk through the stop sign today because there's a policeman there. Tomorrow when I'm late for work, it's okay. I'll walk straight through the stop sign. It doesn't matter. What can't be proved can't be believed. That means, you know, you've got to prove everything to me. I'm not going to believe anything. It's called universal doubt. As a society, is full of universal doubt. doesn't believe a thing. You say, well, this is what happened. They'll say to you in university, prove it. What empirical proof have you got for that? You say, God is real. Prove it. We don't believe anything unless you can prove it. And we can't prove anything, so... You know, you can't believe anything. You know, scientific knowledge is certain. Now, we know in, in the professional world, we know that no scientific knowledge is certain. We know that. But, you know, for us people out here, we're told to believe scientific knowledge. You know, we're told to believe all the stuff that we're told about greenhouse warming. We were told to believe that the, the world is drying up. Just a few years ago, our premier had the scorched earth principle. You know, not allowed to use your sprinkler, not allowed to do anything. Everything's got to dry up because we're running out of water. We were told by somebody in the States who put a big program together that the world is drying up, the seas are shrinking, everything is going to, to, to dry out to nothing because of global warming. So we were told that. It's just that now, after the dams went down so low and everything looked very desperately dry in Australia, everybody says, okay, these are the big rules we're going to put in here. Scientific knowledge is coming. This is what's happening, you know. And all of a sudden, God opens the heavens and it rains and we've got floods here and we've got so much water we can't... You know, they're rushing the water out of the dams now to make room for more water that's coming and they've got so much water and they won't give us any more. They just charge us the same rate now. That's before. But scientific knowledge is certain. That's what we're told. We're told to believe the professional. I'm going to step on some shaky ground today. You know, I read an article this morning about immunization for your children. You've got two, two thoughts with regard to immunizing your children. One thought is you should have your child immunized because your child should be immunized against you know, certain diseases because that's what you should do. And the other thought is, you know, these immunizations aren't properly tested and they can be harmful to your children, so I have the right to choose not to immunize my child. So I won't immunize my child. So the government says, scientific knowledge is certain. Um, You must immunize immunize your child, and if you don't immunize your child, we won't give you certain payments coming down the road. So they're wanting to build up a, a belief that you will accept what they say because they say it's scientific, 
And scientific knowledge is certain. That's what they. But we know science is not certain because when they tell us one thing about butter one day, and eggs about eggs one day, the next day they're telling us that butter is good and eggs are okay. So they're changing all the time. So there is nothing certain about science, nothing at all. There is no knowledge of life after death. Can't prove it. So there's no knowledge. This is what the lies are. Real means seen and handled. This is real because I can touch it. These are the lies of our society. To be certain about anything is to be arrogant. You're so certain that God is you. You're such an arrogant person. You're so certain that the Bible is true. How arrogant are you? You, you believe it. You strongly believe it. Then you're an arrogant person. You know, if you're not arrogant, you have to believe everything. You know, if you believe everything, everybody has a right to believe whatever they want, then you're okay. But if you believe anything firmly and anything strongly, then you're arrogant. That's what the society says. And freedom means doing as I please. You know, if you really want to be free in life, let me do what I want to do because freedom is doing what I want to do. These are the deceptive lies of our society. You've heard them. You've heard people say them to you. You've heard people use them as excuses. That's in our society. It's part of our society. You have to break all the rules to have the fun. Catherine Hepburn, and some of you might know Catherine Hepburn, she was a famous uh, movie star. She said, if, I, if you obey all the rules, you miss all the fun. She lived all her lives in a mistress relationship with another man's husband. She died an old lady, but she... Hey? Another woman's husband, that's what I meant to say. Marilyn Monroe said, if I'd observed all the rules, I'd never got anywhere. This is what Marilyn Monroe... What, where did Marilyn Monroe get? She was 36 when she was found dead in her Brentwood house by a psychiatrist. She broke all the rules. She, she broke a lot of them anyway. She, she had an affair with an American president, most likely. We're not sure whether she died of a drug overdose at 36 or whether she was murdered because of her affair with the president, which she was going to come out with. But anyway, that was the rule. Break all the rules or break the rules to have fun. You know, if somebody says there's the boundary, you know, if you really want to have fun, you've got to cross the boundary. So this is the way God has, uh, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of Christ. So who determines when it matters? The world and the flesh and the devil say, you know, you're the one who determines when you do something. That's what the, that's what the world, the flesh and the devil says. You know, in the end of the exercise, Caitlin is the one who's going to argue and, 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 and decide when she's going to obey the rules of the road and when she's not. Caitlin will decide when she speeds and Caitlin will decide when she doesn't speed. There is nothing that's going to control Caitlin except for Caitlin and Caitlin will decide and de- define what's right and wrong for Caitlin. And don't anybody get in her road. It's the same with everybody else. They think you're the one who will determine whether you'll do it or not. And Paul predicted this, this idea of you have fun to break, you have to break the rules to have fun. In Second Corinthians, Second Timothy. 3 verses 1 to 4, it says, Mark this, there are terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. Why? Because they're the center of the whole universe. That's why you love yourself. You know, one of the greatest doctrines that have come out from the pit of hell to circulate through our world is the doctrine of having a good self-image. Trying to get a good self-image where you love yourself. 
we have so exonerated that we actually believe in ourselves more than we believe in anything else. The whole world says just have to believe in yourself. It's not about believing in God, believing in Jesus Christ. No, just believe in yourself. Have faith in yourself. Have confidence in yourself. This is Lady Gaga's new uh, worshipful idea in her song. She says, this is the new religion. The new religion is believing in yourself. And she is the big voice for believe in yourself. Lovers of self. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited. They're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's the problem. Lovers of pleasure. You know, you have to break the rules to have fun. Fun is central. It's all about What is the most exciting thing you can do? And you have to break the rules to get the most exciting thing happening in your life because all the rules would make it very boring. Moses faced the same idea. So there's nothing new under the sun. You can go back through the Bible and you can see the same things happening in the Bible. Everything just sort of repeats itself. And in the Hebrews 11 verses 24 to 26, it says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season or for a short time. He decided that he was going to align himself with an oppressed class of people. He was going to be a Hebrew. He was going to be a Jew rather than to be known as an Egyptian and have lots of fun, you know. It's a big cost. Moses says, you know, I am a believer. And if, I, if it hurts me, it doesn't matter. I still am a believer. And he aligned himself with the believers. The Egyptians who were believing something else says, you're, you're not going to have any fun if you keep on believing that stuff. But Moses says, it's not about this temporal fun that you can have right now today. It's about what's coming in the future. I'm a believer And I'm standing on the ground believing. And if you hate me and you kill me, that's your choice. But I'm a believer. And he governed himself by what God said and not by what what the, the pleasures that were being offered in the world. Oh, there's plenty of pleasures in the world. The devil comes up and says, why don't you suck on this lollipop? Why don't you eat this food? Why don't you do this thing? There's lots and lots of pleasures. Every time you think you come to the end of pleasures, he's got another load of pleasures just sitting up there for you. And they come in, the, in lots of shapes and sizes. They come in the shapes of friends at school and people around you that say, you know, you ought to try this little thing. It's just so good. Why don't you take a sip of this? This will really get you high. Why don't you just expose yourself to this? This is really good. Have a look at that. That's really nice. The devil's full of different flavors. You say... Why is it so boring to be a Christian? That's just one flavor. To be a non-Christian, to be an unbeliever, to not go the way of Christianity, you've got all these different flavors you can suck on and all those flavors are poisoned and they will kill you. There's only one way. That's God's way. Worldly thinking is this sort of crazy thing where you let go of your controls. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 20 says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the law that you must no longer think as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Their heads have gone sappy. They've gone soppy. They've gone useless. The word futility in thinking is useless thinking. Useless thinking. 
They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They have hardened their hearts and they've become dumb in their head. They've got ignorance. They just don't know because their minds have become clouded. He says, having lost all sensitivity, they don't feel God anymore. They have, they have no sense of conscience anymore. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality. They said, oh, okay, I'm not going to listen to God anymore. I'm not going to do what God wants anymore. I'm just putting God right out of the picture. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give myself to fun. I'm going to have as much fun and as much pleasure as I can cram into my little body as much as I can get because fun and pleasure is all it's all. They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. It's not enough to get that hit. You know, once you got that hit, you know what? It's no, it's no satisfaction once you got a hit because you go back to get the same hit, you know, and there's a second diminishing return. The second time around, it doesn't taste as good. The first time you had that little bar of chocolate, it was great. The second time you came around, you know, you could taste something else in the chocolate. It wasn't that great. The third time around, you were eating it, but you weren't enjoying it. The fourth time around, you know, you wanted to put something else with the chocolate to make it better than it was for the first time. There's a continual lust for more because you can't get enough hits it just it just turns to sand in your hand when you think you got it It, it, it's gone you have to grab at something again and you know society knows that the devil knows that and those who start to suck at that and eat at that they will continually go for it and never be satisfied and you will go and go and we go out on the street on saturday night and there's people who come past us and, the, and they have been devoting themselves, looking for pleasure, looking for excitement all their lives and have ended up in the gutter because of it. Why? Why? Because they think that you have to break the rules to be free, to be happy, to have pleasure. Lawlessness is a love problem. Breaking rules is a love problem. It's not a legal problem. It's a love problem. The Bible says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, so you can't love the world and love God at the same time. If you sit here and say, well, I love God, yet I love the world as well. You know, you're a liar. You're deceiving yourself. You don't deceive anybody. You're deceiving yourself. The reason you're deceiving yourself is because the scripture says you cannot love the world and love God at the same time. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Because if you had the love of the Father inside of you, you would hate the world. But because you love the world and the world loves you, then the love of God is not inside of you. For everything that is in the world, the craving of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. And I listen, you know, I, my wife went to a funeral on Saturday of um, a man that was a missionary, in, um, a, a Finnish missionary in, in New Guinea. And uh, she listened, she came over, she was a bit teary. Jenny, are you here? Where is she? She's gone. She's gone out. She was a bit teary. And I said, why are you so teary? She said, it was a bit, was a bit sad, you know. She said she, she listened to all the things that he had done in his life. 
he just built houses up in New Guinea. He, would, he had um, been a missionary. He had pioneered churches. He had done all his life for God. And as an old man, he had died. I said, well, that's what happens. Yeah, but it's sort of so final, you know. It's so, yep. She says, I said, and what did you learn from that? She says, I just want to live for Jesus. I want to live for Jesus. Because in the end, we all cark it. We all die. Now, the people who don't believe that usually are between the ages of zero to 25, maybe. They don't believe it. They think they're immortal. They think they can keep on going. And they, and they get shocked when one of their friends gets killed in a car accident or one of their mates. Oh, you know, uh, what's that guy, Stallone? What's his name? Sylvester Stallone. His son got killed or died of a drug overdose at 36 years old. He's devastated, right? You know, why? How did he? Well, he thought he was immortal. He could play these games. He could play with the devil. He could drink that stuff, and it wouldn't hurt him. Hey, guess what? He's woken up on the other side, friends. It's not a pretty sight. This is how it works. Now, I have spoken to you about this before, and I'm got, and the reason why I repeat things to you is so that you can understand. If you don't understand the society in which you live, you will be deceived by the society in which you live. The best way to immune you to the work of the society is to explain to you what happens in our society. I said before, God determines rules in the pre-modern time. So if you, if you like, if you're living in Africa, it's called pre-modern time. It's not a modern society. It's a primitive society they believe in god and they believe in demons they believe in spirits they believe in a a spiritual world that's what it's like in africa that's called pre-modern and in the pre-modern time people believe that god and his commands are what they have to face man lives inside of the commands and the rules of the of god that's the way it is in a pre-modern situation in a modernist world, like in the society, in our society, modernism started around about 1650 and went to around about the 1960s. Now, modernism was the time of great enlightenment where we began to switch our head off and think about things, switch our head on and think about things. We were Science and reasons began to rule. So it was the laws of science that dictated certain things. Test something and try it and prove it. Test and prove and test and prove to prove something, you know. It was the laws of logic, you know, and reason, reasoning ideas and ideas batted backward and forward to discuss ideas that became the, the source of our rules and the basis of our lives. This is, this is our modernist period. But we live in a postmodern era now so from 1960 onward to 2012 it changed in the west it changed in australia it changed in the western countries and what happened is people individuals said you know what i don't care what society says the rules are i don't care what the church says the rules are i don't care what god says the rules are you know i'll tell you what the rules are I'll define the rules for myself. And so the hippie movement came along and it says, free love, everybody, let's have sex. Let's have sex in big numbers. Let's have sex all together. Let's have sex with everybody else's wife. Let's have sex. And that was just like every rule that you could imagine with regard to sexual ideas was broken down with the hippie movement. They had the great big uh, rock concerts and at the rock concerts, they were just one heaving mass of immorality. 
Why? Because in the postmodern world, it says, I'll determine what's right and wrong, not you. I'll determine what the rules are for me. I'm central here, and what I want to do is more important than what you're telling me what to do. And so that's the world in which we live. It started in the 1960s, and it's still happening now in 2012. It's running rampant through. You try and get young people today to do what they're told. You try and explain to kids at school that they have to listen to their adult teachers and obey their adult teachers. You've got a big job on your hands. Because you know what? Children are told they have rights and they have a right to not listen and they have a right to do what they And so chaos rules. Great. Our, society, our governments love it. They set it up that way. They set it up that way so they can bring more rules in and more laws in and govern so they can control. We shout, do something about the, the kids that are wayward. Do something. And the government says, we've got some more rules here now. And the government gets stronger and we've got a more tyrannical government controlling everything. It gets worse and worse. Wait, what's, where's it going? Setting itself up for the Antichrist? Setting itself up for the rule of Satan in the world? where those who know the right to do will be considered wrong and put to death and those who do the wrong will be exonerated. Isaiah says, Woe to them that call evil good and good evil. Look out for that generation that calls evil good and good evil. How was your weekend? I had a really wicked weekend. It was so good. That's our language. That's the language of our young people. What is it? Is it good? It's filth. Filth. What does that mean? That means it's so enjoyable. It's so good. It's filth, man. Filth. That's a change. When filth was filth when I was a kid, filth was dirty. Filth now is great. What did you do on the weekend? I went to church. How was church? Filthy, man. Think it's funny? I don't think it's funny. I really don't think it's funny. That's our society. And it's rampant in our society. That's how people talk. And you try and say that's not the way it is. And they look at it and you say, Oh, you are such a dinosaur. Oh, you are so old and archaic. Oh, where were you born? I was born on the right side. I was born when things were good were good and things that were bad were bad where are you born you see we didn't learn this the way that jesus taught us you know jesus says but who however did not come to know christ this way it says in that scripture that we looked at before it's about choosing who will rule our lives you know um there's a guy um and you guys won't know him some of the younger ones know but bob dylan <coughs> he used to sing and he's still uh still a, a, a singer and he sang a song in his Christian days, you've got to serve somebody. You remember that song? You've got to serve somebody. 
You may serve the devil or you may serve the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. And then he'd go through and he'd start talking about the rich guy and the prime minister and the man who's got the tanks and the man who's got the banks. And he, but you can have all those fancy things, but you've got to serve somebody. You may serve the devil or you may serve the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. What he's saying to us is he's saying, someone is going to rule in your life. It's not about you having choices, it's about you, at the center of things, he says, you've got to serve somebody. Somebody's got control over you and you have to obey somebody. So our choice is really not what we do. Our choice is who we obey because someone has got to rule. Well, who determines when it matters if I cross the street? So it says, don't, don't walk. Who determines whether it matters if I cross the street? I tell you, God determines that. This is what it says in the scripture. In Romans chapter 13, this is, uh, this is, um, this is uh, Darren's favorite scripture, and I'm using it with Darren's permission today. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God, even the bad ones. Even the bad authorities that have been established have been established by God because God allows them there. By in his sovereign will, he allows them to be there. Consequently, he who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror to those who do right, but to those who do wrong. Do, what you, uh, do you want to be free from fear of the, of the one in authority? Then do what is right and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant to avenge of to the uh, sorry, he is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore it, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but because of your conscience. So he's saying to us there, he says, you know, the, the council, the government the federal government, all authorities, is being established by God. Now, shall I disobey authorities? Well, you can. Should I obey God or man? The scripture says, you know, well, of course you should obey God. So if my authority, if my government tells me to do something which is against God's law, then I can say, I'm sorry, I will not do it. I will obey God's law, not man's law. Well, authority will say to her, well, then if you disobey us, we're going to put you in jail. So be it. You hold the sword for judgment. If I disobey you, I have to accept the judgment. But I'll accept the judgment for Jesus' sake. I'll accept the judgment because the judgment is because I'm suffering persecution. I'm suffering a rejection. I'm suffering in the law because of Jesus. And that's what, our, that's what our brothers and sisters did in the early century. Do you worship Caesar? No, we worship Jesus. Say that again. I worship Jesus. Say it one more time and I'll throw you to the lions. I worship Jesus. Come with me. You're going to be kitty cat for today. Let's feed you to the lions. Yeah, well, that was the judgment. The judgment is if you didn't worship Caesar, you had to be thrown to the lions. So, you know, they knew it. You know, you want to disobey the law? Well, the law is going to punish you. Yeah, I'll accept the punishment rather than obey the law. There's a place for civil disobedience. 
There's a place to stand up and say, no, I won't obey the law. When the law breaks God's laws, then I should I disobey God's laws or disobey man's laws. I should disobey man's laws and do God's. But I should not walk away and try and escape from the punishment. I should say, okay, I'm going to be punished, but that's okay because I'm being punished for Jesus' sake. You understand? But apart from that, all the other laws are okay. So if it says, don't walk, what God expects you to do is to submit to that sign because it's put there by council and by the authorities and to not walk across. I don't care if a thousand people walk across and there's a problem with the light. It doesn't matter. Find another way around. But don't walk through a red light. It's like driving through a red light. If it says, don't drive through, it's a red light. I sometimes drop the kids home on Friday night. Friday night, drop them home, and it's now I'm driving home. I'm driving home, and just as we're coming down Smith Road, there's always that light there. I don't know where he's standing, but he must be standing in the bush. It's a pedestrian crossing. I never see anybody, but before I come up to it, I'm sure somebody presses the button and watches it go red. And I'm sitting there thinking, there's nobody, there's no one on the streets. There's no one there. I'm now pulling up at a, at a pedestrian crossing for no reason at all because there's nobody crossing. And I'm sitting there, you know this crossing I'm talking about there? I'm sitting there thinking, this is stupid. Somebody's going to jump out from the bush and mug me. Oh, dear Jesus, help me. Here I am. So, well, what's the best thing to do? I would just drive straight through it. No. No, don't drive through it. It's there. It's a, there. It's a test. It's a test to see whether you believe that those rules have to be kept. And God is keeping a tally of how many times I went through a red light last week. Sorry. <laughs> well, I was coming home from work and I had the trailer on the back, you know, and I come to it and it was going around the corner and oh, it says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Went straight through a red light. Oh, Jesus, forgive me. I'm preaching on this on Sunday. So I made my confession. (laughs) See, we live without a king. We think we live without a king. We think we live under our own rule. We're making the rules. We're defining what's right and wrong. That's what we think. There's nothing new under the sun. They thought that in Judges as well. Judges 21, the last verse in Judges, the book of Judges, Judges 21 verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. And it says everybody did what was right in his own eyes. That's where we live. That's exactly where we live. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. You know, it's right for me today. I'll do what I please. Tomorrow, if I don't feel like doing it, I won't do it. If I do feel like doing it, I'll do it. It's Everybody does what's right in their own minds. We have a problem here, don't we? Have a, our society says values are relative, you decide. But God doesn't say that. God says it's in stone, it's black and white. There's no dark gray areas. It's all right out there. The Bible says in Proverbs, the way of a fool seems right to him. But a wise man's listened to advice. So a fool always thinks he's doing the right thing. He can always judge or argue his point. He can always defend himself. All a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. See, the Lord looks into your heart. He's judging you. He's looking at it. So we're going to look at the law of love today because lawlessness is a love problem. 
the law of love has two parts. The first part is love the Lord. That's the first part. Love the Lord. You know, we read this in Matthew chapter 22 and 30, 36 to 40, and we, when we think it's particularly New Testament, teachers came to him and uh, the Pharisees came to him. They tried to, to, tried to trip him up in the law. So these guys knew the law and they tried to trip Jesus up in his understanding of the law. Which is the greatest commandment, Jesus? They're going to try and trap him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You would think that that was something that Jesus actually invented, but it's not. It's something that was written many, many times in the book of Deuteronomy. You go through the book of Deuteronomy, and one of the things that keeps on coming over there is the second giving of the law. You know, Exodus is the giving of the law. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law where, they, they give, where the law is given to the Israelites. All the way through that book, it's all about loving the Lord your God. Loving God, not just keeping the rules, but loving God. Because keeping the laws or keeping the rules and love are entwined together. You cannot separate them. Joshua says it in the book of Joshua in chapter 22, verse 5. This is, look at this, he says. But be very careful, says Joshua to the people of Israel, to keep the commandments of the law. Here's the rule of law. Okay, you've got to keep the rules. The Old Testament is not about just keeping the rules. It's about loving God. The Old Testament and the New Testament are the same. They're about loving God. The Old Testament says, change from your rebellion and turn back to God. The New Testament says, you're not changed. And so Jesus is coming to take the problem away. Love Jesus more. So it says there, it says, that, it says be... But be very careful to keep the commands and the law, the rule of law. So that's the rule of law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. Now listen to what he says. And this is his words. He says, To love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to obey his commands, to hold fast to him, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. That's the love of the Lord. Here in the Old Testament, Joshua is telling the children of Israel, to love God with a passion, with everything they've got, love God. You know, obey what he says. You know, how do you do that? Just love him. Just love him. Serve him. Obey him. Do whatever he wants you to do. That's Old Testament. That's not New Testament. That's Old Testament. Love God. So Jesus came along and he actually trained his disciples. And you are a disciple of Jesus. If you're a disciple of Jesus, this is the training that he... These four things, these four things are common to all disciples of Jesus. The disciple of Jesus in relation to Jesus displays four common traits. And this is what they are. There, is, there was a commitment to the person of Jesus. All of, the apostles, all, of the, all of the disciples, except for Judas, had a commitment to Jesus. They, they were committed to him. You know, what does commitment look like? It's like a marriage commitment. When you say you're married to somebody and you're committed to that person in a relationship and then somebody comes over to you and says, you know, would you like to be married to me? No, I can't really because I'm already committed. I'm already in a relationship. Commitment says this one only. 
This one, this one is the most important person. This one here is the one in my life. You want, my, you want some, well, I can give you love commitment type things, but you know, not like this because this is my wife. So, so when you come into Jesus, Jesus is looking for that commitment. He, you, you come and you say, uh, he said, I want you to be committed to me. So how do I show you my kid? Well, I want you to gather together and worship me on a Sunday and just seek me with all your... And uh, I want you to do that. Would you do that for me? Just for me? Would you do that for me? And your commitment to me, would you do that? Yeah, I'd do that for you. Well, you know, why don't we go and why don't we do this? It's Sunday. We can get away and do this. We don't have to go to church. But I have a commitment for Jesus. I have a commitment to Jesus. I committed myself to his body. I committed myself to him. So I'm not going to do something other because it's a breach of commitment. Oh, it's easy. Our society is all about breaching commitment. It's all about breaking relationships. Society says, start a relationship, and when it, when it looks like it's not going well, break a relationship and start another one. And when that's not going well, break that relationship and start another one. I got called to, to fill out a, uh, a notice of intent marriage form for a, a, colleague, a colleague of mine. She wasn't in town. She says, can you fill out this form? I said, oh, okay, I'll fill the form out for the guy came over. I sat down. I said, okay, he's an older guy. He's just been overseas and he's got to, he's got to marry a, a Filipino wife. You know, that's fine. I said, okay, have you been married before? Yes, she, my wife died. Okay, okay so that's your, your, your wife died yes okay so i put down and filled the form now i said have you been married before no just my wife died i said no no have you been married before oh yes i've been married three times like the, the first two i just didn't have the commitment the second the third one died and i'm going for my fourth now look it's easy you don't like it throw it away you try again, someone else. We're looking for a perfect thing here now. We're looking for something that's really nice. You know, I don't, I'll define what's right and wrong. Don't give me stress in my relationship because you give me stress in my relationship. I'll walk out of my relationship with you. You might be my mother. You might be my father. But I will reject you if you don't do what I want you to do. That's what our young people are saying. They've got no commitment to their parents, no commitment to obey their parents because the world's told them you can do whatever you want and your parents can go jump in the lake. No commitment to a person. You didn't learn this from Jesus. What you learn from Jesus is to commit to a person. You learn to commit to a person and to be committed to that person for the rest of your life. That's what the disciples learned. That's how they were committed to Jesus and that's how we are told to commit to one another. The second things the disciples were to be were obedient to Jesus. So the commitment sort of raced over into the sense of obedience. So when Jesus spoke to them and said, I want you to do such a... They were so committed to Jesus, they said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. I'll, I'm committed to you. I'll submit to you. I'll do what you want me to do. So if, they said, if Jesus said to him, go and do something, and they didn't want to do it, even if they didn't want to do it, they would do it because they were submitted to him, they were committed to him, they loved him. Their love was rounded up in commitment and submission. That's how they showed love. Don't talk to me about love. If your love doesn't have in it obedience, commitment, and submission. 
If there's no obedience, commitment, and submission in your love, you don't have love. You have a deception. It's something else. The disciples learned that Jesus required from them obedience. They also learned that that would probably mean that they would suffer. So every one of them had an obligation to suffer. So they actually come out, Jesus said, from the very beginning, when you start this walk with me, don't even begin this walk with me without understanding this idea. Before you pick it up, before you pick up a relationship with me, I want you to understand this one thing. You've got to take up your cross and follow me. What does that mean? Well, they knew what that meant. They meant we have to take up the implement on which I would be crucified and follow Jesus like he's been crucified. I have to be crucified. I am going to suffer. Those who want to get married should remember one thing. Marriage is about enjoyment and pleasure, but it's also about a great deal of suffering. And if you don't understand that, you have idealist expectations about marriage. Marriage is emboldened with suffering, and the suffering is the thing that brings people together and brings iron out of the fire. It's through the suffering that lives become forged in the crucible. If you're not willing to suffer in marriage, don't get married. Don't marry Jesus until you're willing to suffer for Jesus. And if things are getting tough in this world because you have to stand up when everybody else is running around, you have to be right when everybody else is being wrong, and it's going to cause you suffering, stand there because that's what you were called to do, to stand and to suffer for his name's sake. So we're called to do that. It's not about having fun and jumping around the front and getting your totsies off there in front of everybody else and and having fun and sensual pleasure in church. It's not about that. It's about being trained to be a martyr for Jesus. That's what it's about. You can go anywhere and have fun if you want. The world is full of fun and it comes in religious flavors as well. But Jesus and commitment to Jesus and commitment to the law of love says you've got to suffer for his name's sake. And that may mean being rejected and despised by men and women. Listen. Live. And finally, the disciples were called to share in the work of Christ. So that it just didn't mean that they were just friends with Jesus. It's that they had a job to do. And they got about that job. That was what it was. When you look at the word disciple, it's the word methet in the Greek. Methet. And that word methet embraces all of those four things. It says, this is what a disciple is. So if you want to know whether you're a Christian... Ask yourself these questions. Am I doing this? Am I committed? Am I committed to Jesus? Am I obedient to Jesus? Am I suffering for Jesus? And am I doing Jesus' work? If you can't say yes to all of those, then you're probably not a disciple of Jesus. So that was the first. The first one was to love God, and that's the way you love God. Obey Him, commit yourself to Him, Suffer for his name's sake and get on with his work. That's the way you love him. The second one is to love your neighbor. Jesus says, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. 
He says the entire law is summed up in a single commandment in Galatians chapter five fourteen. It says that love your neighbor as yourself. You know that the Ten Commandments existed. There were four commandments at the beginning. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love the Lord. There is one God. You shall make no foreign images. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And the fourth one was that you should keep the Sabbath day holy or the day that you rest should be kept holy for the Lord. So that were the four things. They were God-related rules and said, this is how you, you love God. The other, the other six the other ones, honor your mother and father. You know, don't kill, don't uh, commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, and don't covet your neighbor's goods or your neighbor's wife. Those have to do with your neighbor. That has to do with, the, with your interaction in society. And he says here, the entire law is summed up in one thing. He just loved people. He says, love won't do harm to anybody. He says, John 13, verse 34 says, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, you, so you must love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. There's that word disciples, the word methets. We know what that meant. In Romans chapter 13, verses 8 and 10, it says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continual debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandments there may have been summed up in this one rule, Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. I cannot love Ray if I'm messing with Ray's wife. Can't do it. Uh, You know, uh, Ruby can't love God and love Ray if she's playing adulterous games somewhere else. You can't say, well, I love you, but that's nonsense. Love is summed up in one thing. And the one thing that love is summed up is this. You're not going to hurt or do harm to your neighbor. So I might go around to Ray's place and I might see his shovel there laying there. And I think, boy, I'd like to have a shovel. Ray's not here. Ruby's not around. There's that shovel I'd like. I think I'll take that shovel. Well, why would you steal a shovel for starters? I mean, who wants to steal a shovel? That's a stupid thing to steal. <laughs> well, what, would you steal a shovel, James? Not at all. Why would you? But then I would steal it. You know, well, 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 Ray comes to look after his trenches later on because the rain's coming down the back and the water's going to go into his house if he doesn't clean this. He's looking for a shovel. Now, I've hurt Ray. I've hurt him because I've taken his shovel. I can come to church on Sunday and say, I love you, Ray, but I don't love Ray. Because I hurt and harmed him because I took his shovel. Do you understand that? So you can't steal something from someone and say you love them. It's just rubbish. It's not possible. So if you love them, if you truly love them, you fulfill the whole law. The problem is we don't love each other very well and we don't love God very much. <laughs> See, sin, lawlessness is a love problem. That's the bottom line. It's always a love problem. There are two words in the Greek I want you to know, and you'll know them probably already, but I'm going to go over them again so that you understand them because we get confused, and I don't want you to be confused about love. I want you to understand what love is so that you can teach others what love is. The confusion is this. We get told in our society that love is this wonderful feeling that you get over your body. 
It's the thing that squirrels around in your tummy. You know, it's when somebody looks at you and they're going, oh, my, that look. Did you see that look she gave me? I think I love her. I love her, you know. It's that feeling, you know. It's when you go and you see a little baby in there. My little Johnny came around. My grandson came around. He sits there. He's in Nana's arms. And Johnny looks at me and goes, smiles and says, hi, hi, Papa. How you going? Oh, I don't love that. You know, it makes you feel all gushy inside. Well, that's love, but that ain't God's love. That's not the love we're commanded to have. That's phileo love. That's a different love. This is the meaning of phileo love. It's like chocolates. I love chocolates. Well, you know, when I put that chocolate in my mouth, my wife had a birthday yesterday. Happy birthday, Jenny, for yesterday. For all those who keep their birthdays, Jenny's was yesterday, 14th of July. Men... Never forget your wife's birthday. It's unloving. Isn't it, Jerome? Yes. So she got some chocolates. Uh, Nana and Papa bought chocolates for Jenny. So, you know, we come in, there's, there's flowers. They're lovely. Put the flowers in. The chocolates are my favorite. <laughs> I love chocolates. You put them in your mouth. You don't have to chew chocolate. You just have to sit there and they sweat in your mouth. They melt in your mouth. And as you sit there, they melt. You find out what's all oh, this caramel on the side of that one that's melt. You know why you let you don't chew you know why you don't chew them? So it lasts longer. Just let it you don't even swallow them. Sit there for half a day. See if you can hold a chocolate in your mouth for half a day. You know, you hold it there. I've still got it in my mouth. You know, it's just so good. I learned that when I was when I was visiting Jenny's father when he was dying. He was at, in uh, Mount Olivet. And he was complaining, he was in the palliative care, he was complaining because they took his teeth away. And he had chocolates and he couldn't eat his chocolates. He loved chocolates. He felt warm about chocolates. There was nat- something naturally flowed out of him with co- chocolates, you know. He was emotional about chocolates. He, he, loved, he, he, he loved certain chocolates. He was discriminatory about chocolates, you know. He had pleasure in chocolates. He delighted in chocolates. He liked chocolates. It was because they made him feel nice in the mouth. I said, Dad, you don't need you don't need teeth to eat chocolate. He looked at me and says, What? Oh more like what? <laughs> I said, just put it in there and let it melt. And he put it in there and he rolled it around and he looked at his eyes, went wide, he was having a great time. He was filet chocolate. Great. That's what, but you know what? After a while, too much chocolate. Ooh. I mean, it fails. Philea love always fails. And when you get love happening, and what most people talk about love today, is, is, it usually starts off with this phileo thing. You know, they're talking about the warm thing that they're feeling on the inside, this gushy thing, this it borders on lust. It borders on eros, which is sexual side of love. But it starts there with this warm, gushy thing. And you know, you know, people just throw their brains away for it. You know, it must, you know, what are you doing in a wrong relationship? It must, uh, how can something that feels so good be wrong? Well, it's just, I feel this here. Well, what is, it's true because I'm feeling it. biggest load of nonsense 
The feeling fails. When the feeling's gone, does it mean it's gone? Well, yes, they're coming up to marriage and they're looking into each other's eyes and they've got this feeling of warmth and love and everything is great. They have a ceremony. They wake up on the Monday morning or the Tuesday morning at their honeymoon and, you know, he discovers that she doesn't look so good in the morning. In fact, she... And he discovers that when he wakes up in the morning, his breath smells like it's been down in the park in the corner in the dog quarter. You know, it's like, wow, wow, you bet, you know. Things aren't so smooth now. Things don't feel so good now, you know. What what does it mean our love is gone? Well, lots of people write songs about the love dying, you know, when love leaves. And people like write in their vows, we'll stay together till love dies. I think, well, what love are you talking about? They're talking about this one that fails. This is not the love that we are commanded to have. This one comes naturally to us. We don't even have to try. I don't have to command you to love to phileo. You will just phileo because you do. I don't have to tell you to do it. I don't have to command you to do it. You will do it because you like the taste of it. It just comes naturally to you. However, agapio is like vegetables. Have you ever tried to feed broccoli or feed Brussels sprouts to a child? Ever tried to feed them pumpkin? They're sitting, sitting down and they feed and you say, eat your pumpkin. Mummy and daddy smashed your pumpkin up with sweet potato so it tastes not. I don't want it. I don't want my pumpkin. Eat your pumpkin. I don't want my pumpkin. Do I have to get the spoon? No. So you're going to get the spoon. Eat your, I don't want my pumpkin. Eat your pumpkin. You will love your pumpkin. I don't want my pumpkin. I don't want to eat my pumpkin. I have to smack you then. Don't smack me. I don't want my pumpkin. Ah, I don't want my pumpkin. And when they grow up, they love pumpkin. They come to my place and eat pumpkin soup. Pumpkin, 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 isn't pumpkin great? Why? You have learned to love pumpkin. You have expressed an agape love for pumpkin. Vegetables are like that. They don't, it's just not natural, you know. There are some things I will not eat. Slimy beans I will not, acro beans I will not eat. I don't like them. I will not learn to like them. But love, this agape love, it has to be commanded because you won't do it. Unless you're commanded to do it. It's learned, it's cultivated by human will. You have to choose to love. It's volitional. You have to make a choice to do this. It's non-discriminatory. It's unbiased. You don't, you don't say, oh, this is the reason I will, this is the reason I won't. You just have to do it because God says it is to. It's unconditional. It means it's unrestricted. It's preciousness. It looks past the revoltingness of the vegetables and says, you know, they're full of vitamins and they're good for me. Therefore, I will see the preciousness in the thing that I am loving. So when you have an agape love and you don't necessarily like the person that you are commanded to love, you have to look and see the preciousness in the person that you are commanded to love. See the value that God sees in their lives. It's esteeming them and it's high placing or worth upon them. It's prizing or honoring them. It's in spite of. It doesn't matter if your breath smells. It doesn't matter if you are not perfect. 
In spite of your imperfections, I still honor you and love you. That's the love it took. And it never fails because nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop it. When you get young, and I look in the mirror sometimes because I, I, I still feel 18 inside. And it's a, great, it's a great shock for me when I look in the mirror. You don't know about it yet, kids. But you will discover one day when you wake, open your eyes, Dad, it's true, isn't it? It's true. Yeah, I know you know it's true because I remember when you were my age. <laughs> or you look in the mirror and you see an old man looking back at you. And I think, Where did that, what happened there? I mean, what, when did that take place? I look at my wife and she's still good. But I look at me and I think, man, what, something went wrong somewhere. It's all that chocolate. <laughs> it comes. And when that happens... When you get old, doesn't matter. She says, I love you still. It's not because she's feeling good about things, eh? because all the feelings have gone. <laughs> it's because she has a commitment that's premised on a gapio. Love is a choice versus love is an emotion. Phileo is distinguishes from a gapio in that this. Phileo more nearly represents tender affection. Not love, but just tender affection. Phileo never used to command, by a command to love God. So the Bible never says you must phileo God. So when, it's, when you're at a place and you're swaying with the music and the tears are running down your cheek and you feel warm towards God, it could be said that you are phileoing God. But you are not commanded to phileo God. You're commanded to agapeo God. So the emotional stuff, that's okay and you're allowed to do it. You're allowed to have an emotional relationship with God. He made us an emotional person and he is an emotional person and it's fine to have emotions with God it's fine to to love God with your emotions but listen when God tells you to stop doing something that you're doing and to obey him he requires you not to feel warm about that but to do it obey him that's agapeo well I'll obey you when I feel warm about it stop it you're not told to feel warm about it you're told to obey him that's it. That's a gap hour. That's why it's commanded. You have to. Not a choice. It's easy. Phileo is easy. A gap hour is virtually impossible. It's easy. We can all have fun here and we come, oh, come back to church next week because we all had fun. If I, you know, if I preach a sad sermon to you, a hard sermon to you, and it hurts you, but it makes you think about holiness, you think, oh, I don't think I want to go back to that church. They're two holiness people, you know? Well, then just, then just stop a minute. Now, it's hard. A gap of love is nigh on impossible. You can't do it. He can do it. Well, that's why the Bible says that he pauses love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He says, you can't, you haven't got it in you. It's impossible. You don't have what it takes. You can't love God with the gap of love. And God puts it inside of you. God has got to pour his love inside of you or you can't do it. You cannot love God unless God pours his love inside of you and says, now I'll love me through you. So the Bible says, and hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he gave us. 
And then he says in Ephesians chapter 5, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. How can you live that life of self-sacrifice? You can only live that life of self-sacrifice if the Spirit of God, the Spirit of love is in you to help you to do that. Second Timothy verses 1 to 7 says, But God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. So you have received the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, if you're a disciple, you have received the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of love. And the Holy Spirit now resides within you. You have the power to love God with the agape of love. You are human and you can love God with your emotions, but now you are divine because you can love God with his spirit within you out of his love from within you. You understand that? 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 to 3 says, you know, if you don't have it, you're nothing. So, you know, you've got it from God. Jesus has given it to you. The Holy Spirit abides within you. He loves you. He says, if you speak with tongues of men and angels and do not have love, you're nothing but an empty, glanging symbol. You can have the gift of prophecy and fathom great mysteries and, and have all knowledge. And you have faith to move mountains, but you have not love, you're nothing. He says, if I give all my possessions to the poor and surrender my bodies to the flames and have not love, I am nothing. You've got to have God. You've got to have his love. You've got to have the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that you can have the love of God in you. He puts it inside of you. And there's a connection between love and obedience. So I want you to get love is not this emotional thing. It's obedience. Now, the way you're going to see agape love is obedience. If you love me, this is the word love, agapeo. If you agapeo me, you will, everybody say it, obey. Everybody say it. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Yeah. And whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. So don't talk to me about loving God if you're disobeying God because you haven't understood the exercise. It doesn't work that way. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come and make our home with him. So the love of God and God who is love will come and live with us when we are obeying him. Because he says, you know what? You're obeying me. You love me. I love you too. I'll come and live with you now. I'll come and be with you now. I will come and have my home with you now because we can all live together here because you obey me. And there's a connect between love and submission. Oh, such a horrible word, submission. It's the word that we most hate in Australia, submission. Don't ever ask anybody to submit to you. I mean, I don't know what we do with the Bible. Because the Bible says that love and submission and, and obedience and commitment are all kind of intertwined. You can't love God without submitting to him and obeying him. There's a connect between love. It says, submit yourself then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This, this, you know, how do you love God? Submit to him. What does that mean in my life? You know, I could stop now and I could go through every person. I could say, what is God asking you to submit on? I could just say, I could put my hand on you and say, what particular things are resting in your life that you're struggling with, that you're having a problem with submission with God on? And every one of you would come up with something. And the issue is not, the issue is not that you don't feel that you love God. 
The issue is not that you don't feel like you love God. The issue is whether you will submit to him. And that in itself is agapeo love. Not feeling nice about God, obeying God. Now, I could, I could stop this whole thing right now and say, every one of us, there's no point in learning this lesson unless you actually put this lesson into practice. I could say that. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving you. You deceive yourself if you do not recognize that submission to God is an expression of love to God. And if you don't submit to God, you plainly don't love God. You love the world. You have to submit to one another in reference to Christ. That means, like in your hand, look, everybody, you know, we, we all get, well, don't you tell your wife to submit. She ought to submit because the scripture says, submit to your husband. Yeah, but the verse before it said that, said this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So if you ever get to a place where your husband's telling you to submit, you probably got to take him back to the first verse and say, we've got to find a way around this because it's mutual submission. Mutual submission. It's not me telling Jenny what to do and she better obey, otherwise she doesn't love me. No, 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 no. Am I listening to my wife? Am I listening to what she's saying? And am I willing to submit to her? Because if I'm not willing to submit to her, why would I expect that she should submit to me? And this is not feminist doctrine. This is scriptural doctrine. Submission in the Godhead was an interesting thing. You know, Jesus submitted to the Father. God submitted stuff into the... The Father submitted stuff into the, father, the Son's hand. The Holy Spirit submitted to the Son and to the Father. Everybody's submitting to themselves in the, in, the, in, the, in the Trinity. Everybody is submitted to themselves in the Trinity. Hey, if it works in the Trinity, it should work in the family as well. It's the part of love that we haven't learned yet. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority. That's what we discussed before. It talked about the laws of the land. Then it says, oh, oh, here's an ugly one. Obey the leaders and submit to their authorities in the church. Woo, yuck. They watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be no advantage to you. We don't even like him. We look at that. Take that one away quickly, Mark. We don't want to have you say that, you know, that a pastor in a church should have some authority or should be submitted to. You see, we can, we can gauge our level of acceptance of this stuff by the way we feel emotionally about that stuff when we read it, you know? Now, we all know that there are abuses to power, and authority sometimes abuses authority. But somewhere in the line, we've got to grasp this idea that love and submission and obedience, you know, all I wanted my kids to learn as they were growing up is obey dad and mum. Because we really do know what we're talking about and the things that we're trying to protect you from are real and dangerous out there. And all you have to say to me, Nathan, is I hear you, Dad. I love you, Dad. I'll obey you, Dad. I'll submit to your rule. That's all I wanted to hear. Because what I'd hear was, oh, everybody else is doing it. They all want to go down there. Why are you such a nard? Why are you such a dead, dead? You know? No, I didn't actually hear all that sort of stuff, but he was good. I mean, Nathan, was, he'd fight a bit, and then he would submit. He would submit. He'd say, okay. Why? Because he loved the relationship more. He valued the relationship more than he valued his, his fun. The relationship was more important to him. And we, we still have a relationship today because the relationship was more important to him. 
He would accept my authority because I was looking after his soul. I said, I have a job to look after your soul before God. Why do you think I put the boundaries around just to make your life miserable because I want to cause you pain? Why do you think I put the boundaries around? It's because I love you and care about you. I'm willing to take your flack. I'm willing to have you abuse me. I'm willing to have you say horrible things to me as your father, but I love you and I will put a boundary down there because I love you. I know what's out there. I've been out there. I was eating up out there and I want to save you from it. That's the heart of it. That's the heart of the, the parent or the pastor who stops, stops sinning, stops sinning, stops sinning. Why? Oh, he's just a lawyer on himself trying to be a big, strong. No, he loves you. He cares about you. He's trying to protect you. Listen to what he says. He's the one who's standing in there going for it for you. We get so despising of authority. We look at people in authority and we despise them just because they're in authority. Yet God put them there. And I'm not asking you to worship the ground that leaders walk on. They've got to be accountable. And boy, God's going to burn them if they don't get it right. But you've got to understand something. If they're doing what God is doing, you should listen to them because they're looking after your soul. There's something about love that we haven't learned, you see. We want love to feel good all the time. This is different. This is God's love. Love should abound in our lives. And we learned this as memories verse a long time ago. And this is my prayer, says Paul, that your love, your agape, this is the agape love, not the phileo love. We want the phileo love to abound. Well, I want to feel better and better and better. And then after I felt better and better, I want to feel even more better. Better and better and better. Oh, we're having a party time here. It's just so fantastic, so better. Paul didn't say that. He says, your disciplined love, your mindful choice love, your unemotional love. I want that love to abound still more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, not in feelings and passion and, and, and having fun, in knowledge, in depth of insight. Why? So that you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. You can be able to discern things. You love God more, you can discern what's right and wrong. If you love God more, you're, it's, not a, it's not a brain. Oh, you know, look at that. That's wrong. It's because it's going to take me out of God's care it's going to take me away it sets a bad example it's, it's just wrong you know it's a it's a no-brainer you know i love god more it shows me quite clearly that it's wrong i'm not going to choose that way i'll discern and i'll be pure and blameless in the day of christ because i love him more i'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness right living comes through jesus christ to the glory and praise of god in second, first, Tim, uh, first Thessalonians 3.12, it says, May the Lord make you your love increase, superabound, the word is, and overflow for each other, for everyone else, just as ours does for you. This is what Paul's talking about, this incredible, incredible love to abound, the God love to abound in our lives. He says that we should be rooted and grounded in this love, that we should come to the fact that, he says in this whole passage here, is that we would be filled to the fullness of God. How much, how much love do you want to have? He says, to be filled to the fullness of God. That much love. And then John says, this is not just a verbal thing. It's just not talking about stuff. He says, this love is real. 
It's real. He says, let's not love in words or in tongue, but in actions and in truth. It's not about just saying I love you. You know what? Put the love into practice and do it. Amen? All right. So that's the law of love. Simple, eh? You got it? It'll probably take you the rest of your life to do it. Let's pray. Father, we just come to you right now and ask that you help us. Lord, we can't do this without you. We are nothing, Lord Jesus, and you are everything. It's your love that fills our hearts, Lord Jesus. You are the one that challenges us. You are the one that changes us. And Lord, we don't want to be caught in a world that's arbitrary, that treats your word as something that can be just taken up one day and dropped the next. We don't want to view life in such a way that is... You know, we're determining everything, Father. We want you to be the center of our life. We want you to be the Lord of our lives. We want your love to control us, Lord Jesus. We want to be governed by you. We want to follow you. We want to suffer for you, Father. We want to obey you and do all you, that you want us to do, Father. Lord, we ask you to help us today to put it right with you so that your love can flow through us and that we would live with the law of love in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. God bless you.